This is an ABC podcast. But it feels like there is this divide in our communities and we don't know how to bridge them. And it's a really big job to do centuries of truth-telling in nine days and to try and win over the hearts and minds of these people. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seat, two-term incumbent, independent. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hello, welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RM Breakfast and Q&A joining you from Wurundjeri Country in Melbourne. And I'm Fran Kelly on the Gadigal Land of Air or a nation in Sydney and PK Pre-polling across the country officially opened this week. We've already seen nearly a million Australians cast their ballot. Australians just love pre-polling, don't we? We're going to be joined by Indigenous Affairs reporter and proud Torres Strait Islander Isabella Higgins a little later to take a look at the state of play as we uh, sort of start the rundown now to referendum day. But before we go there, PK, let's wind the clock back a bit first to late last week when the Disability Royal Commission handed down its final report, the culmination of four years of work, 32 public hearings, 7,900 submissions, hours and days of harrowing and devastating stories of abuse and exploitation from Australians with a disability and their families. There are 222 recommendations, far-ranging and detailed, that take years to action, some of them, I'm sure. And one element, I think, that ended up being disappointing for those most invested in this, which is the disability community. You know, they push for this, they've got it, they've waited for this, but they were disappointed, some anyway, that there wasn't complete agreement amongst the commissioners on some very key recommendations. This was a a blow for some, wasn't it? Absolutely. I mean, let me just go to the detail. I mean, central to that report was this call to end segregation across lots of different segments of the community. So essentially phasing out segregated education, so-called special schools by 2051, segregated employment by 2034, group homes 2038. But that split between the commissioners is a huge issue, right? Because it leaves governments with, well, it kind of puts them off the hook in some ways because they say, oh, well, you know, I mean, you can just hear it. Um, Well, the commissioners aren't even sure. Now, on segregated education, there was a difference of opinion on the timeline to achieve it. But for other subjects, two commissioners disagreed with the change. Green Senator Jordan Steele-John, who is, of course, a a senator who lives with a disability, told David Spears on Insiders that removing segregation needs to happen even faster. Well, 30 years is wildly inadequate, David. To put that in perspective, that would mean that a disabled child born today would be likely to see their child educated in a separated, segregated setting, and that is lonely, that is abusive, that is unacceptable. 30 years is a very long time away. I mean, that is really in the never-never. Oh, yeah, it's very far away. But the the broader discussion, I mean, we've heard people come out saying these are good institutions, they are good places doing good things. So that it is a big discussion. I mean, It's Fran, mixed the- because if you've got your kid in a school, a mainstream school, then sometimes they can be bullied or, you know, fall behind because there's not the support that they need. It's, it's vexed. I understand that. It's vexed. 
It is, but the argument, the central argument, and there is a bit of unity on this, is that the mainstream settings, like, for instance, you know, your state school needs to be able to do better so that students or parents don't feel like they need to go to another place because they're not meeting their needs. And at the moment... For many, it's just not meeting their needs. So the amount of work that needs to be done to make them even deal with the needs of its existing cohort, let alone integrating those who are not in those schools, is going to be enormous, right? I mean, this is huge stuff. So the government has now set up this cross-departmental task force. Uh, The government's saying it will work in close consultation with the disability community, but this task force is going to take some time. Is there really a momentum and and the energy in the government to, to do some of this and can some of it be done more quickly? Well, I'm not sure that there is. I know the minister, the couple of ministers involved say, you know, that they're not going to do this in a rush. It's going to be considered and that is good it's going to be considered, but you want to make sure it doesn't just then sort of gather dust somewhere. And I know some within the disability community who have been pushing for this want action and they want it quickly and they're disappointed, as we mentioned, in the Split because that's where the media coverage went. And media coverage or lack of it has been a, a big disappointment for some people with disability uh, as they've watched this roll out and compared it to other Royal Commissions. But it's important to say, yes, this probably will take years. It will mean the disability community will have to keep on the government's heels. But there are key findings that could happen quickly that would ensure that that doesn't happen. And one recommendation is to establish a Ministry for Disability Equality and Inclusion with a dedicated Minister for Disability. I think that's a good idea. And also to establish an independent National Disability Commissioner. I guess that's like we have a Children's Commissioner to oversee the implementation of the central findings of this report. And just to go to that, one of the key you know, statements within the report was it found significant changes required for Australia to be a truly inclusive society for people with disability who continue to, quote, experience high rates of violence and abuse, neglect and sexual and financial exploitation. So we pulled back the curtain. We know it's there and we, we just can't leave it at that. It has to change. No, it can't be parked, you know, dusty report in another 10, 20, 30 years, uh, you know, more calls to revisit an old report. I can just see it unless Mm. there is a sense of urgency around it. And the government's also announced in this past week, PK, a crackdown on our immigration visa system, focusing particularly on dodgy vocational education training centres. Hey, we've been there before. And migration agents who are accused of rotting the visa system. This is all in response to the review conducted by the former Victorian Police Commissioner, Christine Nixon, which took a broader look at Australia's migration system. And Christine Nixon came up with some very alarming findings, didn't she? Hugely alarming. So Christine Nixon found loopholes had allowed for an almost industrial scale exploitation and crime in the migration system. Uh, She referred to particularly grotesque abuses of temporary visa holders. And we know that the government's been cracking down on that TPV system. In opposition, the shadow minister, Christina Keneally, who, of course, ended up not, you know, winning um, her seat, so is no longer with Labor in the parliament. But she hounded the then Home Affairs Minister, Peter Dutton, about what she described as a blowout in the number of people arriving by plane on tourist visas and then seeking asylum. And and this goes to some of that as well. Yeah, I mean, I remember at the time when, when Christina Keneally was saying, you know, 95,000 arrivals over five years by plane, some people suggesting that was a sign there was trafficking going 
going on. So it's not like this hasn't been talked about. It's been talked about, that's for sure. But now, you know, there has been a a proper review. So some tangible things, the government announcing $50 to establish a new division in the Home Affairs Department to crack down on organised abuses of the system, $28 investment in biometrics. So there is is a bit of meat on this. But let's take it back to the politics because let's... Let's not skirt around this. There was a lot of politics in the announcement as well, right? Like the government went in hard blaming the former Home Affairs Minister, who is, of course, the opposition leader, Peter Dutton, uh, and saying he's responsible for all of this. Let's hear Claire O'Neill. I mean, this is just an amazing fraud that's been perpetrated on the Australian people here. We've had Peter Dutton, who's built his political career, talking to everyone about what a tough guy he is on borders. And at the same time, he's been cutting funding to compliance, cutting funding to the immigration section of the department. And on his watch, literally people with criminal convictions walked into the country and oversaw large rings of human trafficking and sexual slavery, literally the worst crimes that can be committed on this great earth. Uh, So I think Peter Dutton's got a lot to answer for here. But at the end of the day, this is my problem now. It falls in my lap and Andrew Giles and I are very focused on fixing it. Her problem now, but, you know, bit of a jab at Peter Dutton. Peter Dutton uh, was, well, you know, he had a few words to say about Claire O'Neill. Here he is. She's a very angry person, uh, always very angry and very aggressive. And uh, the negativity coming out of uh, Claire O'Neill today and and the overstated position that she's taken, uh, frankly, is... Uh, all about trying to provide cover uh, for a bad prime minister. Wow. Always very angry and aggressive. I've never heard that said about a male minister. Have you? I'm not sure. I've heard very angry and aggressive male ministers. Uh, look, yeah, I mean, it's been interpreted as quite gendered. Uh, look, they're both having a go at each other. Yeah, the gloves um, are off. There are clearly problems in the system, clearly, as the report shows, but as lots of good reporting in the Nine Papers, for instance, has revealed, and so they do need to clean it up. That's a, that's a fact. But that what you're seeing here is something bigger, and this is a politics podcast, not just a policy one, and what you're seeing is the government trying to use this to also change the, the tough guy persona of Peter Dutton and to say, you know, he says these things, but if you look at the detail, he doesn't do these things. It's a bigger piece, I think, of political work they've been doing to try and erode that reputation. Don't you think, Fran? Oh, yeah, I do. As I say, this is a, this is being played out in his political realm completely, but that was not the atmospherics of Christine Nixon's work and her review, and she has found, as we started off by saying, some pretty horrific abuses um, in the temporary visa system in particular. You interviewed Christine Nixon this week, and I was struck by how she said what struck her was the breadth and the width of the trafficking and the crimes that were going on. It wasn't just sex trafficking. We know about that. Human trafficking for work, but a range of, across a range of areas that people were being exploited, and at the same time, the compliance officers within the department have been cut basically in half over the time of the last government. So, you know, clearly a bigger effort needs to be put in there. There is a real issue. There is definitely a real issue. Should we bring our guest in? Let's do it. <laughs> Isabella Higgins uh, is the ABC Indigenous Affairs reporter, of course, Europe correspondent. Like, she gets around 
She gets around. Boy, she's got the world's biggest beat. <laughs> yes. Welcome to the party room, Isabella. Oh, it's so nice to be here. Yeah, thanks, Isabella. It's great to have you back on Australian soil for all this campaigning. We're recording this on a Thursday morning. There are now just nine days until referendum day. The Prime Minister's been in Tasmania and South Australia a lot recently. The two states we were talking about as, as possible swing states in the referendum or battle states, talking to as many people as possible. When people have those one-on-one conversations, when I myself have pointed out to people, sat down with people and asked them to read the question, people who are either undecided or soft no voters declare, yeah, that's fair enough. So Isabella, he is going around the country determined to change the mind of the nation one by one. How is that going for him and for the Yes campaign generally? Well, we're starting to feel the intensity, I think, on the Yes campaign. Every morning we're seeing that they're all over the country, but it does still feel like when you're out in the community, there is a huge percentage of undecided voters or people who still just feel like they don't have the information, which is concerning when we're so close and we know that already almost a million people have voted in this election. Have they left it too late? It's a very big question. It's a question I keep pondering a lot. Was the nation ready for this conversation? Did we not do enough truth-telling beforehand? Do Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people know each other well enough? And it feels like that's the core of the problem. I mean, we've got the whole messaging around the campaign that some people find confusing or hard to understand. But it feels like there is this divide in our communities and we don't know how to bridge them. And it's a really big job to do centuries of truth telling in nine days and to try and win over the hearts and minds of these people. So I don't envy Anthony Albanese's job at the moment. So eloquently put, Isabella, uh, in terms of the level of truth telling and the general I think, lack of information or or understanding people have about Indigenous Australians in so many cases, right? On the other side of the campaign, we've seen the no camp um, hold events across the country as well. WA particularly lately, it's a real focus. Their campaigning style seems uh, much more muscular. I spoke with former Prime Minister Tony Abbott. Uh, He's a leading voice for no. Here he is. It will entrench this separatism, further entrench this separatism, which has bedeviled Aboriginal policy really since the days of Gough Whitlam. Uh, Aboriginal people are fine Australians and they should be encouraged to uh, integrate into the mainstream of our society. Quite a line there, integrate into the mainstream of our society. So I did try to sort of try and tease that. What does that actually mean? And then Tony Abbott went back to some of that language that we've heard for so long, you know, go to school, go to work again. I don't know anyone who who contests that school and work are a good idea for people. It's about how to get there. This integration message, we should all be the same. Jacinta Nubajipa Price has been using it too. Yeah, that's right. I mean, these comments from Tony Abbott were shocking. They're really harmful to a big part of the population. As soon as he said them, my phone lit up with people who were really hurt and offended by this. I mean, this is language that we would have expected in decades far gone, not in 2023. I think it shows a a lack of understanding of the Indigenous community. And is that because when people hear the word integration, what they're actually hearing is assimilation? That's it. These are really politically charged words. They take people back to stolen generations. They take people back to the white Australia policy. I mean, that is really harmful rhetoric to the Indigenous population. So to have someone out there saying this days before the referendum, it it really shocks parts of the Aboriginal community. 
It really does. Yeah, both sides. It, it struck me because, yeah. as Pico was saying, you know, just Senator Price, Senator Price has been out a lot too, and her me- major message this week seems to be: this is divisive. This is going to divide Australia along the lines of race. She says, and yet both sides, the yes vote, the yes campaign, is all about this is a unifying process, and the no campaign is saying, you know, they're claiming a unity ticket too because it will divide. I think we can say that the campaign feels anything but unifying at the moment. It's really uncomfortable for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to have their identity debated in this way. We have heard this language from Senator Price for weeks and weeks now. She was talking this week about auditing Indigenous spending, which... Under the coalition government, we need to remember that they completely restructured the way money was spent on Indigenous affairs. We saw the creation of the National Indigenous Australians Agency. I mean, these audits happen all the time. I think she's trying to say without saying to the Australian public, Indigenous Australians get enough. That's what it feels like to me. I think the the money line and inserting it into the campaign at this point is not accidental. It's interesting because... On this question, the Yes campaign has been trying to counter that by saying, you know, essentially, and Noel Pearson's really tried to cut through with this, that because Aboriginal people will be able to take responsibility and have a voice, that they'll be more accountable and um, the taxpayer will save money. That's been what they... But does that cut through? Well, that was the whole pitch, really, wasn't it? Mm. That if you get better advice, instead of pouring billions in every year, and it's not as many billions as the No campaign has been saying, I know it's considerably less, but instead of that and, and, it, and nothing changing, the gaps remaining, it'd be better advice coming from the ground up, therefore you'll save taxpayers money. That was one of the original platforms, wasn't it, from mm. Yes? And I think... As PK said, Noel Pearson is really, you actually hear him mention the word love all the time in his campaigning this week, which sometimes feels a little bit out of place. I was at an event with him this week where he was really trying to appeal to the migrant community and he was saying this will be a unifying moment. He's like, he was saying this brings together all the threads of Australia's story. We're all in one constitution. It gives us all a voice. He had language where he was saying, like, I'm talking to you, the Italians, you, the Greeks. You've built a great life here. Now walk with us. Extend the hand of opportunity to us. And as you were saying, this was always supposed to be about empowering Indigenous communities. But I think when you're out in the community, people feel confused about how this proposal that's on the table will lead to tangible or pragmatic change. And that is difficult to explain. And when we don't have all the detail, we are imagining how that's going to work. But as the Yes campaigners keep saying, this was a model that was designed by Aboriginal people for Aboriginal people to empower them. The other thing that Tony Abbott said, which I thought was... um interesting is that the voice would double down on failure. That's the language you used by giving a platform to people who'd given bad advice for years, which I thought was just staggering, actually, given, um, you know, he was a prime minister. Like, there's no one who has more power than an actual prime minister. Well, especially than... a prime minister who made himself the minister for Indigenous affairs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. But apparently Indigenous people giving him advice had all the power, which I just think that fails sort of the the basics of the idea that facts. <laughs> that Aboriginal people should speak for themselves and be heard. But mm. he, implying that they were driving the policy agenda. Mm. I mean, that's not, I mean, I was there when he um, started his truancy uh, officer policy and it wasn't based on advice from uh, Aboriginal people from the community. Warren Mundine was his advisor actually at the time. He's the man that he says is an outsider, but he was actually providing the advice and that policy didn't really work. So um, there are some things we need to call out that are being claimed. 
but everyone's trying to hone in their message. Which are the messages, in your view, Isabella, that are actually cutting through the most? Well, I was asking this when I was out at some of these campaign events with these multicultural communities, and one woman said to me, unfortunately, the only campaign material we have received was, if you don't know, vote no. And I think that is a really powerful message. And I think for those who aren't really engaged with this debate, it's easy to say that to buy into the scare campaign, I think that is, it's just easier to understand, isn't it? There's more simplicity in Mm. that message. So the Yes campaign have a really big job to inform people and appeal to hearts and minds of Australians at a time where we're going through a cost of living crisis where there's a lot of other problems on people's minds. And it's a big job. I mean, this is a a wide brown land, as as we know. Mm. Um, Early voting's kicked off across the, across the, country this week. It's commenced earlier in some remote communities. The AEC has has managed to sign up 94.4% of Indigenous Australians enrolled. That's a very high rate, so they're to be congratulated on that. It's the highest ever, I think. But I'm also reading it's not been smooth sailing in some remote communities. The Crikey news site this week has reported some communities in the Northern Territory who say they didn't know the remote voting was headed to their communities until it was already there Mm. and some of them were away. I'm sorry, business, they didn't know it was coming, which is concerning, but it is a difficult thing to do. Do you have any picture or any sense overall of how the rollout is going? Mm, We've heard from quite a few voices in the Northern Territory saying that they would have liked more support at those remote polling booths, particularly around translators. And if you think about some of these communities who aren't speaking English as a first language, that language on the ballot paper might be somewhat confusing if these are people who are only entering the electoral role this year or in recent years, and this is a different process to elections. Well, you probably do need quite a bit of support there. The AEC has is telling us time and time again that there's more resources than ever before, mm. that they're using boats, barges and aeroplanes to get out to all of these places. They started remote polling a week earlier than in the rest of the country. I think it's a really challenging and big job and there will always be issues. There's just, they're two systems that aren't always going to work well together, I think. It must be pretty difficult for Indigenous Australians at the moment, we know, but also to have um, the majority of a country, some who say they don't know, um, and and the whole campaign being, if you know, the no campaign, if you don't know, vote no, to have a vote of people who perhaps don't know deciding what will happen? How, how are people reflecting on that, Isabella? I mean, that's it. This is a vote about the nearly 4% of Australians, but it's the 96% who are ultimately going to decide. If you are an Indigenous person, you've had an uncomfortable conversation in the last few weeks from people who want your opinion, who are unsure. That often means you're exposed to racist remarks. I think maybe we should talk about the Briggs video, a well-known, That's brilliant. I know, a well-known Aboriginal rapper who did a social media video that just absolutely nailed what it feels like to be an Aboriginal person being around your non-Aboriginal friends at the moment. Um, the sort of awkward tiptoeing and dancing that happens from well-meaning people. I mean, that's different to the vitriol that some people experience. But that Briggs video, I think, summed it up when he had people asking him, I think I might vote no because it doesn't go far enough oh, but I've also heard it's going to be divisive, so I don't I don't want to vote for it as well. 
it just it summed up the mood perfectly. I think yeah. it, it's really worth check a watch. it out. It is worth a look. But also, I'm doing another podcast on the Voice Referendum Explainer. I spoke to Animaj Anderson from Thirteen Yarn, which is, as you know, a helpline based inside Lifeline, and she says that they're being over, you know overwhelmed with calls in the last month or two in particular. They've had to triple the number of counsellors. So, and she said even her workers come into work and express grief really at, at, at the grief they're copying in Woolies when they go shopping, things mm. like that. Is this something you're hearing I'm, widely? I'm hearing a lot of these stories, people who are wearing their Yes campaign material and they have people coming up to them and harassing them in the streets. I think some people are casting their minds towards October 15 in the Aboriginal community, imagining what a no vote is going to feel like. And I've had a lot of people say to me, that is going to be a day of mourning to know that the rest of us really didn't listen to this proposal that was fo- put forward by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Many people will say, look, we don't know if it's perfect, but, you know, this is what's on the table and we want to vote yes. And hearing these debates, hearing these threads, having language like what we've heard from the former Prime Minister Tony Abbott back in the public dialogue. I mean, it's really difficult for Aboriginal Australians. There's no denying it. It's difficult, it's uncomfortable, and many people are struggling. The Prime Minister says, just on a final note, uh, and I feel like he's been, you know, using a bit of different language, just preparing for the event of the proposal which he's backed going down, that even if no is delivered, and of course he doesn't want to you know, concede that, um, but if it is, that it would have been worth it because it puts Indigenous issues essentially front and centre. Has it put them front and centre? I think the way we have seen misinformation perpetuated throughout this campaign, yes, Indigenous issues have been put to the forefront. We're seeing Indigenous issues leading the news bulletin. Has it been the most helpful conversation? I would probably say not always. Has it been easy for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander population? No. Has it asked them for a huge amount of labour, energy, mental load? Yes. Will it change the way we talk about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander issues from this point forward? I also think yes. I think we see a more conciliatory tone in some of the no opponents and we might have seen even five or ten years ago. I think even if we compare it to the language that we heard from the coalition in 2017 and 2018 around a voice to parliament, around constitutional recognition, you see that views have shifted, that perhaps there is slightly more unity in this debate. I'm sure Australians have learnt something, but have we beaten the misinformation? Do we know each other yet? Have we overcome that information divide? Have we started the real truth-telling in this debate? I have to say no. So we're back to where you started this, which is, you know, we needed more truth-telling perhaps and we don't know each other. That's what's being revealed here. And we have to grapple with that Mm. as a nation. There are figures as well from Reconciliation Australia that were quite shocking to me. I think it was only one in six Australians have regular contact with an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person. That's a pretty small percentage of the population. I mean, we are a small percentage of the population, but Mm. that shows that 
there's still some level of segregation in our society. Just before we finish, just back to the nuts and bolts, because we are, it's, it's almost gloves off now in this final week, it feels like. The S23 campaign found themselves in hot water this week with the Australian Electoral Commission, that's the Independent Electoral Commission, which runs our elections, which called out their signage at some voting centres because it was very similar to the AEC branding, similar in colour, purple and white. Mm. They put their signs next to them. It almost looked as though the AEC was saying, vote yes, that's how they saw it. That was the danger anyway. Now, the AEC called that out. The Yes campaign had to take the signs down. This is not unusual in campaigns, this kind of shenanigans. Mm-hmm. Um, Senator Jacinta Nabajimpa-Price, who's the leader of the, the No campaign at the moment, rather than noting this, called out the AEC this week for, as being lacking impartiality. It does very much seem like there is more favour uh, toward the Yes side than the No side, and that's really, um, you know, that that is... A concern. Now, I think that's a concern, really. Our politicians and our leaders of this campaign casting aspersions on the independence of the AEC. I think it's, I think it's potentially very dangerous. What do you think? Mm, I agree. Attacking the political process, it almost sets up a future conversation that this uh, referendum was rigged. And where have we heard that debate before in the politically charged climate that is the United States of America? The AEC was very swift to respond and say we have a neutral stance. They also were very swift to respond to the, the issue around signage with the Yes campaign. That was within hours of pre-polling opening up that they came out and said, please move this away. We know they take their neutral stance very seriously. So for one of our senators to be saying this is quite damaging, I believe. Yeah. And and Isabella, obviously um, the things generally that we've heard from Jacinda Nubajimpa-Price, um, people have been contesting, obviously, you know, a couple of weeks ago, the claim that colonisation, you know, didn't have ongoing negative impacts on Indigenous Australians. But just just as an Indigenous reporter too, just talk to me about the potency of um, that message being able to be delivered by her rather than, for instance, Tony Abbott. Now, when Tony Abbott said it, very similar-ish, ish, mm-hmm. <laughs> it was different, but you know what I mean, on RM Breakfast, um, he is a white politician, a former politician, but, you know, people people kind of go hard. But does the fact that she is Indigenous make this for non-Indigenous people having this discussion, does it kind of muddy the waters? Is that the idea here? Absolutely. Without a doubt, it completely does. I mean, to say that colonisation hasn't impacted First Nations people is a blatant lie. I mean, they were... It's just not factual. It's completely not factual. I mean, they were removed from their lands, that babies were stolen from their children, their society and culture was... you know, decimated in some ways because they weren't able to continue to practice their culture. I mean, it is just patently untrue. But for someone within the community to get up and say that, well, people, I think, feel like they have to respect that that's her truth or that's her experience because she is from the community. And I think that's really difficult for non-Indigenous people to understand. I think it will be the Indigenous campaigners who really do influence this debate on, you know, when we talk about people who, you know, like to label themselves as the progressive no or whether it is Senator Price, I think they really have influenced and driven the public debate in this referendum. Isabella, it's fantastic to have you on the podcast. You're flat out this week, you and all the other Indigenous reporters in our reporting team. Um, So thanks for giving us your time. Thanks a lot. Oh, it was wonderful to be here. Thank you. Thanks, Isabella. We'll move to questions without notice. 
to give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, uh, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. The bells are ringing. That means it's time for our question time. And this week's question comes from Sarah and she asks... The governments say they're focused on, yes, succeeding at the referendum. But don't they have a plan for what happens and what action they take if it isn't successful? Is it irresponsible to only focus on a yes outcome? Well, is it irresponsible? Um, Let's get to that. The government's firmly focused in in the now on the positive. We we had um, Senator Mallandiri McCarthy on Q&A this week with UPK saying, you know, this is a, a grand final and they're all focused on winning the grand final and not focused on the day after and and if it's a loss. However, there must be a plan B, in my view. I mean, the Prime Minister has, you know, taken responsibility for calling this, said it's been good to have, you know, disadvantage of Indigenous Australians on our front pages so that we really get to know better what life is like for many of our fellow Australians. Um, But there's also been the damage that Isabella was talking about. This has been a hard road for Indigenous Australians in particular, but all the nation. And there's going to have to be some kind of healing statement, I think, and action from the government, from the Prime Minister and the government after this. Marcia Langton at the Press Club called on the government to have an action plan ready because she was worried that, I think in her terms, the, the racists would come in if there's a no and, and just try and fill the void. So, you know, I, I don't know what yeah. the government's action plan is, but I think there does have to be one. No, and the reason we don't know is very deliberate. As soon as you start saying this is what we're going to do or conceding, you know, you've got to fight for every vote. The the vote doesn't even happen officially. I mean, pre-polling, sure, but, you know, that's meant to be an exception to the rule. It doesn't even happen for another week. We're recording this on a Thursday morning. There's like nine nine days of campaigning. So, you know, it would be mad to go, oh, this is what we're going to do. Like, you're trying to get a yes vote if that's what you're campaigning for. Yeah, so vote by gonna, vote, the PM told us. Yeah, you heard. can understand that. I think it's actually reasonable. But what you ask is also reasonable. It would be irresponsible if they weren't thinking about it. Of course they're thinking about it. Right now, in the Prime Minister's office, are teams of people and speechwriters working on both speeches. Mm. <laughs> that's the truth. And both answers. Um, that would happen with anything, by the way. With any, You have to work on scenarios. So that's Politics 101, at any planning in any business even, like you've got to work on scenarios. And I think you've got the best sense of what might happen from what Julian Lisa said to me on RM Breakfast on Thursday morning. He, again, was saying, I'm going to try and push for a yes campaign. That's what he's on. But he said there there shouldn't be a knee-jerk reaction and there needs to be some pause, some healing I thought that was a smart thing to say, actually, because I think announcing something straight away would be kind of knee-jerk. You do need to sort of pause and work out the healing bit of the piece, and then there is some real work to do, whether yes, no gets up. There are these, these issues don't go away. Maybe it goes um, back to what Isabella was talking to us about, about the not enough truth-telling done before the vote. Maybe, I mean, the, the government put money in the last budget for the Makarata, which is about the truth-telling. Maybe there needs to be... You know, that brought into focus. There is going to have to be a reckoning about our history and the facts around it. If you hear some of the comments made by, you know, we referred to them earlier from Tony Abbott about right through to Whitlam's era, separatism, he's really broadening the terms of what this is about, essentially suggesting that that this vote is a, is a rejection of separatism full stop. 
No, it's a proposal about a voice. And so what you're seeing there is people making a case for what this is about, that they want it to be about. Um, so you will see from Jacinta Nubajipa Price, Tony Abbott and others, uh, an attempt to say, see, Australians have rejected separatism. That's going to be their language. Um, the government's job is going to have to be uh, to say, hang on a minute, it was on a particular proposal that clearly people were not convinced by. Not everything was up for grabs. That's where the that's where the politics, I think, is going to be, Fran, um, because I think they're trying to broaden the terms here. Yeah, indeed. And there's going to have to be some resources put in too just to the, sort of the mental health task too because this has taken its toll. So all of that is going to have to be taken care of. Anyway, that's it from us for this week. Thank you for your questions. We love getting them. We're particularly fond of your voice notes, which you can email to us at thepartyroom at abc.net.au. You can follow The Party Room on the ABC Listen app so you never miss an episode. We'll be in your feeds for the last actual episode before the official vote. So see you then, Fran. Yeah, it's a big week. See you, PK.